Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. Jess Hosking's smile tells the most incredible story. 20 surgeries, endless hospital visits, bullying, a death threat, and now a fierce sense of passion and purpose. Jess and her twin sister Sarah are stars of the AFLW and have been there right from the start of that inaugural year. Jess is the kind of player you want on your team. Talented, committed, determined, yet kind, thoughtful, and just bloody awesome. She makes people smile, and it's her own smile you should know about. Jess was born with a cleft lip and palate. One in 700 babies are born with a cleft. That's around one every day in Australia. There were constant surgeries, hospital visits, and special appointments for Jess growing up. But the biggest torture came from the bullying she endured and the self-esteem issues she suffered as a result. This episode is a personal one for me. You see, my daughter, Elle, she was born with a cleft last year and one of the first people to reach out to me was Jess. We didn't know each other then, but she gave me incredible support and insight into the road Elle has ahead of her. That's the kind of person Jess is and it's something I'm incredibly grateful for. Her own journey has given her resilience and strength but also a renewed sense of purpose as she raises awareness and educates people on a birth condition which is relatively common but rarely talked about. And it all began as an energetic little girl growing up in the Mornington Peninsula. I would have to say I was a little bit of a tomboy. Um, (laughs) Me and my sister were always in the backyard doing something, building cubby houses, playing sport. Um, We went through that stage where... We were in those long Roxy or Rip Curl board shorts and the tank tops, <laughs> which every every um, teenage girl says that they should never have gone through that stage. But we had that freedom to do what we wanted as kids, and we were very active um, outside a lot of the time. Can you tell me? You mentioned Sarah; she's your twin sister. Were there any other siblings that you grew up with? <laughs> yeah, I've got a um, older brother, um, Andrew. And he's five years older than me and Sarah, um, but he is the complete polar opposite to us. He's a um, short, podgy ranger, and he's a chef, and he's a very good chef. Um, so he, in his own area, has excelled in that. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we're just very opposite. <laughs> and you and Sarah um, are obviously twins, um, and she's an AFLW player as well, and you play together now. Um, we'll get into that a little bit later, but can you tell me a little bit about the twin telepathy that you have? So is it telepathy? <laughs> Telepathy. Telepathy, there we go. Telepathy, yeah. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit more about that twin telepathy that you you guys have? Whatever you want. Okay, I will. I will. What am I, Jonah? I should know this. But yeah, what was that like? Do you have that? Yeah, strangely, we've had a lot of moments where um, the telepathy stuff has come through, and a lot of them that are too real not to be real, if that makes sense. And mum and dad tell us stories of when we were kids and by having so many surgeries and say not having them, we used to go in for some of the appointments together and there was one, I actually spoke to mum and dad about this two days ago and we sat back to back. I was going in for one of my surgeries and they started doing a few injections in me. And so I'm facing this way, Sarah's facing that way and they've put the injection in my arm, not a peep out of me, but then Sarah has just started screaming and bawling her eyes out. And then same surgery, I went in and uh, about the time that I would have started or they would have started operating, says temperatures blew up, 
Um, she was just like something was actually wrong with her. So they, the doctors started checking her. And then the second I came out of surgery, everything went. The temperature, the screaming, the sweats, everything was gone. And when I'm a little bit older, I I think I get the short straw on all of this, but um, <laughs> Sarah had uh, her tummy had blown up like she was nine months pregnant about to pop and it was just this crazy thing as to how this happened and we were at netball training and she's going around saying, everyone, look at my tummy. And then all of a sudden I started vomiting. So I vomited once and her tummy went down a little bit. (gasps) I vomited again, her tummy went down a little bit. And every couple of minutes I was going and running to the toilet or vomiting in the bin and by the fifth or sixth time her tummy was back to normal and then we were both fine. Wow. And it's just Strange. I explain that. <laughs> yeah. But so many twins say that stuff happens. Yeah. How does it, do you have some kind of, like when you're on the football field together, is there some kind of messaging that's going on? Do you know, like if one gets injured or goes down or is playing really well, does the other then play well? Because I feel that. What Does it work on the football field? I'd say through netball and footy, one thing that everyone else has kind of said to us is that when we play, we just look as though we know where each other are. Mm. Like I could throw the ball over my head and know that she's there and to other people they'd be like, how the hell did she know that? Mm. But to us, we're just like, yep, I know she's there, hand off the ball and it's, it's kind of that instinct sort of thing. But I'm trying to think, we've had some some injuries there. Actually, I woke up one morning and... I normally have my phone next to my bed Mm -hmm. and for whatever reason this night I was out in the kitchen and I woke up, I sat out of bed and I was like, something's wrong. So I've run, gone and checked my phone (laughs) and the little bugger, she'd sent me a message saying, I've been hit by a bus and that's all she left. And so I'm freaking out thinking something's really wrong. I had these tingles down my body, knew something was wrong. And so I've called her, I've called her 50 times, called mum and dad 50 times. No one was answering. And so the Mm. worst thing is in my head that something's gone on, she's in hospital. And then eventually she called me back and she's like, oh, sorry, Um, I was just dealing with insurance, but I've I've been in a car accident. A bus hit me and I'm okay, but I was hit by a bus. Wow. (laughs) As you could imagine, I swore at her and said, you can't just send those sort of messages. No. Uh, no. Instinct, something was, yeah, something was off and I knew something was wrong. Wow. That's good for your team to know that you two are kind of connected and come as a bit of a package <laughs> deal. Maybe it's a good tactic for opposition too. They're like, okay, if we take out one of the Hosking girls, we're like guaranteed to take out both of them and we won't even get like <laughs> penalised for it at all. <laughs> Might be a tactic. Don't share those secrets. No, I was about to say, now it's on the podcast, <laughs> it's all out there. But you mentioned um, we're going to talk about footy in a second because I know that came into your life a little bit later, but netball, you've mentioned that before. Was that your main sport growing up or what were the first sports that you got into? Um, netball was kind of the main sport, but we were we had the freedom to pretty much play anything that we wanted and do anything that we wanted. So um, netball, basketball, soccer, um, athletics, anything you can think of. I was diving captain at one point at school. I didn't know how to dive, but I was just brave enough to chuck any flips and do anything. Um <laughs> And, yeah, we, we played a lot of sport and, and kind of got to the point um, if you're good enough at one, you kind of have to focus a bit of attention mm. to it. So that became netball. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I remember going down to the local club at Mount Martha for footy, um, went and joined a friend that was at Auskick and then they oh, it wasn't Auskick, it was the next level mm-hmm. up and they said, oh, we're real sorry that the girls can't play, we don't have a girls team and mm. that was totally fine. I knew that if it wasn't footy, all right, I'll, I'll play netball, I'll play basketball. And so, yeah, went, went and played netball and had played that since I was in prep mm-hmm. um, and then made it through those squad lengths and then the V&L and played Victorian Netball League for a while. Wow. And yeah, hit uh, outside of school and then footy came along. So what about, did you ever think about playing netball professionally? Was that ever a goal of yours? I did, I did, um, and I think had spent so much time and effort into netball and playing it for so long that I was pretty content where I was playing out at Peninsula Waves and I think I just hit a point with netball that I was probably falling out of love with it and mm. I think it's a really hard thing and especially at the age that I was to be falling out of love with it, I didn't know how to get that back and I think that's kind of what happened or coming into footy, I found that love again for a sport and almost stepping away for a little bit and just playing footy, I started missing netball. So I've actually gone back and started (laughs) playing netball again. So they're kind of going hand in hand. It's good. It it gives me a break from one and and start to enjoy the other again. Yeah. I want to talk about your cleft journey because it's a huge part of your story. Um, it's a huge part of my story too. I'm going to try to not get emotional with this. Oh, um, <laughs> you might set me off too. <laughs> uh, sorry. I just, um, and I should, you know, obviously share that, um, you know, my daughter was born with a cleft lip and a cleft palate. And when I got the diagnosis, I didn't know anyone who had a cleft lip or a cleft um, palate. And I searched the internet everywhere. And that's when I learned that you had a cleft lip and a cleft palate. And I, um, and then I was stalking you for so long before you knew that I was stalking you. Um, and then when my daughter was born, you reached out to me and we've been in touch ever since. And um, you've just been such a great support to me. Um, and yeah, I can't wait for my daughter to grow up knowing you, which is great. But um, first of all, can you just explain for those who don't know, you know, what, what is a cleft, cleft lip and cleft palate? Oof, I've got shitters. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll try and hold it together as well through this, but I'm sure there'll be a point that I'll get a little bit emotional. Mm. But for anyone that doesn't know what a cleft lip and palate is, it's for, for me, mine was a unilateral cleft lip and palate. So it meant that from, I guess, this side of my nose or lip, mm-hmm. I had a hole about the size of my pinky and it was covering that part and it went through to the back of the roof of my mouth. So when you form, I actually can't remember what part of the pregnancy or what um, mm. timing of the pregnancy. but Four to six weeks. Mouth, there you go, you know. Four to six weeks. I should know that. <laughs> Um, and the four to six weeks is when your mouth comes together and, mm. and um, that palate comes together and there's multiple reasons as to why it does and why it doesn't um, form. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, mine, mine just didn't. <laughs> so everyone essentially is born with a, a cleft at one stage, but everyone's, the two sides of everyone's face form together. But for cleft babies, they stop stop there. You said yours was on the right side, didn't you? That's the same Correct. as my daughter. She had a right side, uni- complete unilateral. Um, and 
Yeah, which is actually kind of, uh, someone reached out on Instagram and told me kind of rare as well. Like most of them are left side. So Ellen and yourself, I just realised, have have both right side, which is, which is really lovely. People. Yeah. <laughs> What's your earliest memory of, you know, of your cleft? I actually have a memory being in hospital um, and I said this quite a few years back to mum and I was like, mum, I just remember someone walking in with a Wiggles balloon. I was <laughs> up the top with the nurses and the nurses were holding me and I was watching someone walk in with a Wiggles balloon that I knew. In my head I couldn't picture the face as to who it was. I said I was up on this railing and we were high up at the top of the roof sort of thing and I was like, I think I'm making this up because I don't know any hospital that would have a balcony mm. across it. And mum turned around and said, no, you were, that was one of your earliest surgeries and I think it would have been my palate repair. Mm. So the lip lip is normally done around the three months if you're full size or mm-hmm. um, have enough weight on you and then the palate closer to one, one to two. So mum said that was her walking in with a Wiggles balloon wow. and she had actually left uh, my bedside and I was sleeping at the time and when I woke up, um, I was asking where mummies and the nurses carried me out and it was when the royal children's hadn't had the refurb so they actually had a truss uh, bridge mm. and you could actually see down and look at the people that walking through royal children's so yep. there you go that's my earliest wow, memory that's really <laughs> early that's incredible and what, like surgeries, what surgeries does that entail? Because a lot of people think, you know, it's within that first year that you have the two surgeries and then that's it. But it's quite ongoing, isn't it? It's quite a, quite a journey. Um, you do have your first two corrective ones. So for the lip to be repaired normally is for the kids to be able to feed properly. Um, and so I'm, not, I'm assuming maybe Al might have had a few issues bringing her lips together to suck to on a bottle or something like that. Well, they've like got that. special cleft bottles these days. So you, yes. you, know, you have these special bottles with a bit of a hard bit to cover that bit in their palate and their lip so that they yeah. can get enough suction to, to get feed. In. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so they do that one around the three months. You mm. then do your palate around the um, one year sometimes. Um, some are a little bit later. And then once your lip and palate are kind of joined together, you'll probably have a few corrective palate surgeries or lip surgeries. Mm. My next one was when I was in year five or I'd had a couple of sets of grommets and all those things as nose, mouth and ears are all connected. So Mm. the joys of that, you kind of get a couple other things that come in. Mm. But, yeah, other than those minor surgeries, the next major one I had a, a bone graft from my hip. Um, and I was in year five and quite, I remember that quite um, significantly because I obviously enjoying my sport mm. uh, meant that I was out of sport for a little bit. But they took the bone from my hip and put some at the base of my nose um, and part of that uh, cleft lip to palate is when your jawline or in your jaw part of that bone structure isn't quite there. Mm. So. I had that to fill that area and give support at the base of my nose so my nose didn't um, collapse in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, from from that age you, you go through a few of the corrective lip and nose just to realign and I had a few adult teeth that needed to be ripped out in the surgery so had to get a, a few false teeth. So mm. I've now got a lot of false teeth, which is kind of nice. They look good. They I look hope. amazing. <laughs> they look amazing. <laughs> um, and then it, it brings you to one of your last ones is 
uh, I think one of the most co- cosmetic ones too, and it's it's at an age where it's really really hard to to go through. You're going through your teen years and um, probably sub- subject to being aware of your looks a bit more. Mm. Um, and they kind of make you wait for the main ones. So they broke my nose, cut my lip and nose to realign them, but took a bone graft. Oh, sorry, a bone graft, put it in my jaw, and then did a cartilage graft to reshape my nose. So. Mm. Uh, having the unilateral side, um, as I grew up, my nose started to go a bit on an angle mm-hmm. and there was no structural cartilage that was holding my nose properly. And so that one is a hard one to wait for because they want you to wait a little bit older because it tends to have better results as your face grows until for females, I think it's 16 to 18 mm. um, and males is around the 18 to 21 mark. So wow, okay. It's a yeah. hard one to wait for. Mm. but um, And why was it so hard? Well, again, touching on that side of um, being aware of your looks, I think for me at the time, all I wanted growing up with my cleft journey was to know someone else that was going through it and to have someone else that I could talk to and just to see that there were other people going through it. And at that time, Instagram wasn't around and we were back in the days of MySpace and just getting around Facebook. So that awareness wasn't there and I was Googling and doing all those things to try and find um, cleft groups or just someone to talk to. And I stupidly got on um, online to see some articles on parents that just weren't aware of what a cleft were and they would abort their babies mm-hmm. and knowing that that awareness wasn't there for what a cleft is. It's Mm. quite, I found it very hard to know that someone could abort their baby Mm. just because they found out that it was going to be born with a cleft. Mm. Um, You could imagine that emotional journey. Yeah, um, yeah, I think I I was a little bit subject to bullying and I didn't take it too well at times and um, that's kind of why that period is so Mm. hard because if you getting bullied or um, you're not quite happy with where it's at, you have to wait. The one thing you want is that surgery and you have to wait. You've been told can't do anything, you've got to wait two years. Mm. And that's that was the hardest part. Um, what was the bullying like and what was it like growing up with a cleft lip and cleft palate? Um, I actually I put a post up the other day for Cleft Awareness Week and it's probably one of the rawest things that I've shared and I've ummed and ahed for so long because I have now a bit of a cleft community that do see some of my posts and I was worried more for parents and for kids that Mm. would see this post and I had someone call me um, getting a little bit emotional. Mm. (laughs) I had someone call me and tell me to kill myself because of the way I looked and the comparisons and stuff about um about animals and calling me a dog, telling me that the vet was ready to operate, all that stuff. Like I look back on those comments and while it doesn't get to me now, at the time they were my biggest insecurities. So Mm. for someone that I barely knew to be on the other side of a phone and I could hear them and their mates laughing and telling me like to kill yourself, how can you get to that point to someone? So Mm. I think 
that was probably the pinnacle one for me because I stayed in my room for, for days. I cried, I cried. I had little outlets and wrote some poems and uh, played a bit of guitar and, and I actually found that book the other day and while I've found it over the last two years, I have never brought myself to read it because I know how bad some of those poems were and mm. I read one of them and I think at some point I will share it and I think it's really good awareness to know where someone's head can be at and mm. I'm just thankful the support that I had around me through those times. I just don't, yeah, I didn't want that to come across wrong to parents or kids going through it. Um, I didn't want them to go down the, the dark side but mm. more so to create that awareness for people to know that one comment to someone might just be their worst insecurity and that can heighten something for someone. So mm. it was a very hard time. Who was it, Jess? Who would do that? Who was it? Was it someone from school? And how old were you when that happened? I didn't fully know the person. It was through Facebook and and I don't actually know how uh, privacy settings was working, but they got my number through Facebook. And I, I had eventually built up the courage to tell my brother, my sister, my mum and dad about what happened because mm. they just didn't understand why I was in my room for so long. We actually went on a family holiday later that week and to find the courage to go on that and to try and be happy while I still had that stuff going on, when my brother found out, you could imagine what mm. he was like. Um, he pretended to be the police on the phone to Telstra and got the direct number of this person, as they called on a no-caller ID, and they got their number mm -hmm. and then we found out who it was. And <laughs> I know I'm not allowed to swear on this, but this person's number was saved as dick wank in my phone <laughs> and my brother's phone and my sister's phone. Yeah. And I, as much as I would love to name and shame it sometimes, I can't bring myself to know that if I shared this to that person that they might feel horrible and they may feel um, that they may go through something because of this. Mm. So I think that's a bad side of me. Sometimes I'm a little too nice, but at mm. the same time, me sharing this, maybe they remember and maybe they see it. I hope they do. I hope yeah. they do and I hope they've grown up. And I hope, but you, you talk about, you're worried about, you're so kind, what other parents of kids with clefts, but I think they would somewhat take some strength out of that story. So if they, and they can keep aware of, you know, these things could happen to their child. But I think as well, what you're doing with raising awareness really helps as well, because we have to normalise difference, right? You didn't, you didn't see anyone with a cleft. When my daughter was diagnosed, I didn't know anyone with a cleft, but I feel like the more we see these stories, the more we learn about clefts, the more that we show everyone what it looks like, you know, it's not going to look different, you know? Different is normal, really. There's more difference in the world than normal. We just don't see as much because people don't show as much. We're kind of afraid to. But I love what you're doing in, in raising awareness because I think it makes, it educates people about what clefts are and it kind of takes that sting out of a difference because they've seen it before. But also I think you're really inspiring a lot of strength in a lot of mums like myself. What was it like having a twin sister? Because Sarah didn't have a cleft, did she? No, before I answer that, though, 
what you're doing is awareness <laughs> and what you're creating for Elle. You are creating this incredible environment that she's going to grow up. You're sharing photos and videos and her journey on your socials and, and wherever else you are, but you're creating this space for her. She's going to grow up an incredible young woman <laughs> and she has the support of so many, but the awareness that you're generating, everyone around her is going to know what a cleft is mm. and they're going to know that she's going through that. And I think that's the biggest thing. You're an incredible mum. <laughs> I haven't met you properly yet. But We've I been talking for a long you. time, haven't we? So <laughs> I can only tell you how how grateful one day she's going to be for that. And I think I've told you I've, I've only got one real photo of my cleft mm. and I wish I had the amazing photos and videos you put up just to know that's that's a part of her, that's a part of you, and that's always going to be there for mm. her. But you've normalised it for anyone around you and your family and your friends and, mm. and she's going to grow up knowing it's normal and it's okay. So keep doing the you, work Jess. you're doing because it's you. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you're so lovely. Um, <laughs> but back to that question yeah. about my twin sister. <laughs> yeah, she um, she wasn't born with a cleft and that's something that is quite uncommon in twins. Normally if one has it, the other has it. Mm. Um, so we did go through a bit of genetic testing as well to mm-hmm. see if there was something in the genes that um, might have passed down and there wasn't. So it's one of those things that just by chance, I say maybe my sister was eating all the food in the womb and so I wasn't developing properly. Damn you, Sarah. um, (laughs) But was it hard seeing her all the time being, you know, she she looked exactly like you but she didn't have the cleft and wasn't going through those challenges? It was hard sometimes and I think she has been my biggest rock through it all Mm. but that also created being a twin created oh you're supposed to look like her so why don't you and I was the one with an issue Mm -hmm. so it was all those questions were directed at me Mm. which she she got on her high horse if someone was ever to bully me or to say something she was first one to step in and (laughs) get up in their grill but yeah, it was hard um, mm. just to know that there was that comparison at mm. all times and um, <laughs> she's, she's very funny um, uh, with some of the uh, surgeries. She's always there, always was there, mm. um, but she's not. She's normally pretty good with blood and all those sort of things, but anything to do with me, she's just, can't deal. Uh, can, yeah, can't, can't <laughs> deal with it. So she came in uh, after one of my rhinoplasties. I had a couple of stents up my nose to make sure mm-hmm. it stayed aligned for the two weeks. And so she came in to watch them take out all the stitches in my lip and nose and those stents. And of course she had to make it about her and create a scene. <laughs> She's there watching and she said she just went a black hole. She was watching them pull this stent out and then she just collapsed. So they had to take her out of the room and then wow. five minutes later she came to. Um, but no, she's she has she's been a, a huge support and kind of that rock for me through it all. But like I said, it's been quite hard to um, communicate sometimes. And I even mm. said um, this the other day to my mum, dad, brother and sister, 
I almost couldn't speak to them about my cleft stuff and mm. I found it so hard and I don't know why. Yeah, why? Talking wasn't my strong point but I also probably didn't know how to deal with my emotions and to share them with them. I think in a way I didn't feel like they knew what I was going through mm. and that's probably all of those groups and those people that I was trying to seek with clefts, I wanted to speak to someone mm. with one because they just didn't get what I was going through. Mm. When in real seriousness, I go back and I look at that and I'm like, geez, I'm silly. Mm. All they wanted to do was be there for me and they were there for me. Mm. And I sat mum and dad down two nights ago when I put that post up and I explained, I think I want to share this. I need to talk to you first because I haven't spoken to you both about this mm. at all. Mm. And then explain to them that I have a book with poems in it and I also haven't shared that with anyone and they were baffled. Mum and Dad both cried. I cried a little bit and then I shared that and Dad got quite emotional as well. He just said, I can't believe that you felt like you couldn't mm. speak to us. And, yeah, I, I can't tell you why that is. I don't know if it was a form of maybe what you're doing now showing those photos and videos mm. and you've got so much um, communication about it that maybe that's why. I have no idea. Mm. <laughs> I um, Well, I do that because when Elle was first born and you contacted me and I'd been I'd been um, stalking you for quite a while before then. <laughs> you, yeah, I asked you, well, as a parent, is there something that I can do for Elle that maybe your parents did or you wish, you know, your parents had done and you wrote me some really great. And it was, it, it was good for me to get it from your perspective. Okay, well, what can I as a parent? Because I, I don't know what Elle's going to go through. So can you tell me what I can do? And, you know, because it's a big process. It's 18 surgeries. When you get your diagnosis, they say, you're with us at the Sydney Children's Hospital for the next 20 years. You'll have the same surgeon for the next 20 years. Um, there's speech therapy. There's, as you said, the grommets and the hearing, and there's so much involved in, it's such a process. It's not just a couple of surgeries and then you're done. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, you said, I didn't see a photo of my cleft until I was 16. And I got really emotional when I saw that. And you said, just, um, just, find her people that, you know, are also going through it because that, that would have helped me. I found as well something really sweet that your sister did a starter tradition that every every surgery she brought you a gift. Is that right? Yes, yes. I actually have a shoebox in my room that is filled with my cleft journey and uh, part of that Sarah started to get me little gifts and by the time of one of them, uh, she decided to get some jewellery engraved and I shouldn't share this because it's a bit embarrassing, but we call each other sissy sassy doll. <laughs> <laughs> and so she started to get um, that engraved and then by chance just engraved never give up. Mm. And I think in particular when she got me that one, that was the really challenging surgery and she mm. knew for those prior two years that I was struggling. Mm. And so she got me a bracelet engraved with never give up, love, sissy, sassy doll. Mm. And that's something that stuck with me and I realised, you know what, that's probably my motto. Mm. And I am not a big tattoo person, but when I found out that uh, my last cleft surgery, well, what was supposed to be my last cleft mm -hmm. surgery I ended up getting Never Give Up tattooed on my ankle yeah. and 
I wanted to get something to do with the cleft journey. I didn't know what to get, but then that just popped out straight away at the end of it. I was like, this is it. Um, uh, that will remind me of that, mm. but that's a motto I can live by now with anything challenging. I can look down at it and know, well, you know what, you've gone through a lot mm. and you've gone through that side of stuff. This is nothing in comparison or this is just a, a hurdle, a speed bump, not a stop sign. <laughs> so your cleft has given you resilience and strength. I think massively. I think anyone that goes through anything, whether or not it's a cleft journey or just anything that becomes a, an emotional barrier for them, I think that is resilience. You, for anyone to get through anything, you have to have some sort of resilience. Just some people have different levels of it mm. and some people go through certain things for longer and um, I just think there's so much to learn by sharing our stories mm. and if I can share something that I've done or been through, it might resonate with one person, it might resonate with 50 people, but if it helps one person, then I'm more than happy to share. And I think that's what I've realised, like putting some of these posts up that make maybe me go back to a hard time. Mm. Um, not only will it help me get through it, this is something that there's so many people that are resonating with it all and and helping them through it too. And um, I think it's incredible the power that that can have. Well, we ask on every podcast someone close to um, our guests to do a special memo and um, and we asked Sarah to send something to you. So oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> You lied. You said this was for Fox. <laughs> I did. I, I said I needed to talk to Sarah for Fox, but it's not. It's for the podcast. So oh, um, no. yeah. here we go. Hey, Jess. Otherwise, should I say sissy sassy doll? Um, it's me, Sarah. I just wanted to say how proud I am of you. I know you and I don't get overly emotional at the best of times, but growing up, I've always loved and admired watching you and your resilience and how strong you are. It, it was never easy growing up for you and going in and out of surgeries and operations. I, I always wished I could just trade places and swap positions. It was the hardest thing seeing you go through that and not physically being able to do anything to change that for you. But I think you go through a lot of shit as a kid and and it's really made you the person that you are today. And I'm really proud to see you as a mature young woman that you are and am proud to call you my sister. And I honestly wouldn't change it for anything. I'm so lucky to have someone so close to me that is literally like my soulmate. And we've spoken about it before, but it is honestly something special that we both have. I know that you're my person and I know that I can trust you with anything with my whole life and you've got the same back, and I think we'll share that bond forever. But I just wanted to say, again, I'm so proud of everything you do. Keep being the person you are. Um, you influence, you inspire, and especially through footy, I've just seen you have an influence on some young girls, in particular young girls and boys with cleft lips and cleft palates that um, didn't have or may may not have had a role model like you had when you were growing up. And I think it's so important that you stand tall and share your message and share your story because the influence you have on those kids, um, whether it's adults as well, it's really phenomenal and it's 
such a strong movement. So keep doing what you're doing. I'll stop waffling on. That's probably what I'm best at. But I love you so much, um, and I'm really proud of everything you do. Love you, sissy sassy doll. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so many tears. I've got a frog in my throat. Aww. <laughs> it's beautiful. Aww. It's a really beautiful relationship that, that you two have. And I know my, my daughters aren't twins, but, you know, if they can have just half of what you and Sarah have, then, <laughs> yeah, I'll be a very, very content mum. So it's beautiful. I have no doubt your daughters <laughs> um, will be looking out for each other and will have some sort of connection through all of that as well. I hope so. I'm looking towards that, definitely. <laughs> Let's talk about footy. Tell us, uh, how, <laughs> how did footy then come into your life? So footy, I actually started the school footy team mm-hmm. um, when you back were. in, I was probably in year nine or ten, mm-hmm. and I went to our head of sport and I said, I want to play footy. And I knew that GSV had started a competition at the time and she mm-hmm. said, all right, well, if you can rally together a footy team, I'll enter a footy team. Mm-hmm. So I went round to year nine, year 10 and year 11 and 12 <laughs> and tried to rally as many people as we can and yeah. I got enough people and we started the footy team. So we played maybe four or five games in a term and then uh, we finished school and one of our teachers tagged us in a Facebook post and at the time they did a NAB talent search um, and it was a talent search day for footy and we're like, oh, why not? We'll, we'll give it a shot. We're playing netball at the time and we had nothing to lose. So we went down um, and at the time had never been shown properly how to kick, handball, mark, mm. any of the proper techniques. Mm-hmm. Like we knew how to do it. And then, yeah, they told us to go to our local VFL club. So we mm-hmm. went down to Seaford and played out at Seaford Tigerettes for a year while we were doing V&L. Mm-hmm. So kind of stupidly overloading and um, (laughs) going from a game of footy straight to two hours of netball training and then trainings during the week for both footy and netball. So Mm. very much overloading our body. (laughs) And then, yeah, it wasn't long after, maybe within the year or a year-ish, and one of the Melbourne recruiters came down and watched one of our games and I got a call asking me to play in one of the exhibition matches. So I played for Melbourne against Brisbane. Um, that was back in 2016. Mm-hmm. And then... Ahead of the AFLW coming in, yeah, which was coming so in the next year? Just been announced that it was later that year. Mm. Um, and so I think I played that game in June mm-hmm. and then the competition was announced. There was a draft later that year and then I actually did my ACL two weeks later mm. and for those that don't know what the ACL mm. is, um, someone's or sporting person's worst nightmare mm-hmm. means you're out for about 12 months. And so I thought, you know, no chance I'm getting picked up in the draft. Um, I'll just wait till the following year. Um, and then we had Graham Bergen and Damo Keeping come out and they had a chat with me and said, and said look, we still want to take you both in the draft and the rest is history. He ended up at Carlton that season and while I didn't play a game, I was a part of it all and um, played five years out at Carlton and I've just swapped to Richmond. So you you didn't play that whole first season but you were still part of the Carlton Football Club. What was that like being on the outer when, you know, it's a new whole new competition, first time they've had women in Carlton as well. So what was that like 
I heard you. I heard you were the most popular. Um, you got the most fan mail from fans, and you hadn't even played a game. Yes, yes. <laughs> Much to Sarah's disgust and some other teammates' disgust. Um, somehow, I made an impact on um, some of the fans, and I think a lot of the time that they spent in team meetings or actually prepping for the games, it meant well, I wasn't just going to stand around. So I'd go outside the building, go mingle with all the fans, get photos with the kids and have a chat to everyone. And then I remember I think it was two rounds in we held a clinic Mm -hmm. for um, kids. And so all these kids have turned up and um, Sarah and a couple of the other girls are saying, oh, so who's your favourite player? And a couple of them turned around and they had number 11 on their back. And they're like, What? so much. You were there at the first ever AFLW match at Icon Park between Collingwood and and Carlton, um, which Sarah was playing. You were drafted into there. That was the one where they were locked out as well. Like it was so popular. They underestimated how popular it would be that people, they had to lock the gates because there were so many people coming in. You're sitting there watching that match. What are you thinking (laughs) about your future, this competition? What was going through your mind? It was pretty surreal. Everyone else had obviously the game day nerves and I almost think that had I been playing, my nerves would have been settled a bit more. But because I had so much time doing nothing, I was just, I was all up in the air. I didn't know what to do. The night before on the captain's run, I cooked everyone dinner. I felt like I needed to find a way to uh, connect with the group as everyone was that excited about going out there. So my way of connecting with the group was, all right, let's do a team dinner. I've cooked a spag bowl. I wrote them all individual letters and gave everyone a little horseshoe. And it was just a little charm that some of them may still have it, some of them might not. But to me, that was at least a way I could connect. And so leading up to that, I got to the ground way too early, maybe five hours early, Um, and just started talking to people. Um, As the crowd started to roll in, all the girls actually had to be down or off the ground at a certain time. So the first warm-up kick was maybe a 1,000 people and all of that week it was the hype of, oh, there's probably going to be 500 people. Move the next day. There's going to be a 1,000. Oh, we're going to have 5,000. And so at that point, the game was actually supposed to be at Vic Park mm-hmm. in Collingwood and the crowd there is three to 5,000 max. Mm. So they decided to move it to Icon Park and those talks kept continuing and you hear it on the radio and driving in. They're like, oh, I think we could get 10,000 people. We might have 10 to 15. And it just blew away all expectations mm. because those girls went down for their team meeting and weren't going to come back out until running onto the ground for the game, whereas I could go back and forth and do what I wanted. So <laughs> while they were in the meetings, I've gone out, like, 
oh, my God, there's already 15,000 people and we still have over an hour to go. So I've waited and waited. I've come back out. I was like, it's packed. It's packed. It's closed. <laughs> like they've shut the gates and I've heard Gil out the front. So I've walked out the front. I've seen him telling everyone off saying, sorry, everyone, that um, the gates are closed. We're at max capacity. Gil the McLaughlin, CEO of the AFL we're talking about. The poor thing was so sheepish Gil. about it. Yeah. <laughs> He's just head down, people not happy about it. And so I then walked in um, one of the side gates, bumped into a few people I knew, and they're like, can you get us in? I'm, I'm sorry, I can't. <laughs> so I walked through and then the girls were starting to get ready to come out and that's when I started to see, like I was sitting up in one of the boxes for the match and I've walked up the stairs and um, part of the stairs at Icon Park, you actually have open view of outside the gate too. Mm. And so I stood there for 10, 15 minutes watching people climb over the fences. <sighs> one of them has climbed over one of the fences and we had a shin, oh, sorry, a tin roof. <laughs> that someone fell through. Wow. So there was so much about Icon Park that was obviously an old ground mm. and old stands. No one would have expected people to climb <laughs> on a tin shed roof, but this person's fallen through. And at that point, exactly, I was just about to go up and then I've heard a clunk and I've looked. They've broken down one of the fences, wow. one of the steel fences, and people just swarmed in. Wow. And so, well, I'm not sure we're allowed to share the information, at capacity, I think Icon Park is 25,000 mm. max and they wrote that as the number. There were people in <laughs> the rows. You could not walk through the steps. They sold out of beer at, I think, halfway through the second quarter and they sold out of everything. So they just did not expect the mm. influx of that game. What and were you thinking? <laughs> were you just like, <laughs> wow, this is this is something, this is my future, this is, wow, we, we're going to do this. What, what was going through your mind? I can't put words in your mouth, but just I remember what I was like watching this going, oh my God, this is happening. This is happening. We said we could build it and they will come and they're coming. It's amazing. Yeah, pretty much that exact, those exact words. I was baffled at how many people were here and prior to that, I think the biggest crowd I played in front of was 100 people at mm. a netball final and to just be I'd been at the male games before and the crowd erupting but to be at that game and hear the crowd go I was getting so many goosebumps Mm. knowing far out they're here for for Carlton and Collingwood and and so much more than that while it was an AFL game the amount of people that were there for the movement of AFLW and just movement for women's sport Mm. in general was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. We're here and we're here to say, and it's just going to be bigger and better. And of course now all 18 teams in the AFL will have an AFLW side, which is just fantastic to see the competition grow like that. You, you did finally get your chance to play for Carlton and you've been with them for a number of years. You were with them through to the grand final loss with Adelaide. And of course, playing alongside your sister, Sarah, and we've talked about that, that, um, that link and that connection that you have on field. But in 2021, Sarah made the switch to Richmond. How hard was that on you guys? Because you'd never played against <laughs> each other. How hard was that seeing her, her leave? Um, it actually wasn't. Okay. I, oh, actually, no, I lied. There was, <laughs> there was a point when she called me and told me, I think I'm 
going to leave. Mm. And I think for the reasons that she left, totally understandable. She wanted opportunity to play in certain positions and she couldn't get that Mm. um, at Carlton. But when she told me, I was like, oh, no, she won't do it. She won't leave me where we always do everything together. Mm. She's just not going to go. And so the conversation went on for over a month and it got to a point I was probably sick of the conversation and she had called and she's like, oh, I just, I still don't know what to do. I think I need to go. I think I don't. I was like, Sarah, just make a decision. If you're contemplating it that much, you probably just, you need to make a decision. Mm. And if you've still been stuck on it for so long, what are you going to do? You're going to do the same thing next year and contemplate the same Mm. thing. Just make a decision. And then I got a call probably half an hour later and she's like, I've, I've done it. I'm going. I was like, Oh, no. Oh, (laughs) Uh, all right. Um, does it not matter as much to you to play with me? Oh. <laughs> and I was, I think I then hit a point. I was like, oh, we're not going to play together. We've never not done that in mm. sport. But then it was probably one of the best things for us and for us to grow individually. We learned so much being separate. We didn't rely on each other. Um, and while it was great for the year, I was also very excited to play with her again mm. and probably realised our career is not that long Mm. um, and it's something so special to be able to play together. So I think we should play together again. Mm. And she agreed. And so that's where I got the trade to Richmond. And um, finally in the first week she was like, okay, do you want to come in the car with me? We'll drive in. I'll introduce you to everyone. Mm. I said, no, Mm -hmm. I'm going to drive by myself. I'm going to go at a separate time to you. And I'm going to go introduce myself to people individually because I don't want to be your sister. Mm-hmm. I'm coming in as a separate player. Yeah. And so that's something, had we not have done that last mm. year, I don't think I would have done that. I Last year, me would have jumped in that car and let her introduce mm. everyone to me. And I would like to say we've grown from that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey separately yeah. but we're very excited to be back together because you still lived together didn't you during that time as well yes <laughs> <laughs> but finally last year so our training days were separate so uh I had the say Monday Wednesday she had Tuesday Thursday mm. um and then we I think she had an extra one on the Friday so we actually didn't really see each other mm. and I was working her not so much so she was doing leisurely stuff um, while I was at work. So really only saw each other maybe for five, ten minutes before we went to bed and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you ran the New York Marathon with your sister, which is awesome. Yes. Really, really cool. Um, well done. But you did Thank that you. raising money for Interplast um, and of which you're an ambassador. Um, how, how important is it for you to be involved in this organisation? And just tell us what they, what they do. Yeah, um, similarly to the CLEF stuff we spoke about before, Interplast was one of those groups that I was seeking from a kid and looking around. I remember looking Mm. at Operation Smile is Mm -hmm. a main CLEF group. That go to to developing countries and and do surgeries for kids with with CLEF lips and CLEF palates that don't have access to those kinds of surgeries, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And and so I found Interplast and um, 
I saw that one of their main key parts, so they do burns, they do, but they'll operate on anything to be mm-hmm. honest, but mainly look at burns, limbs, and then clefts. Mm. And for the countries that Interplast go to, it's all across um, Southeast Asia. And for countries that don't necessarily have the medical expertise mm-hmm. or um, facilities that we have. And so the surgeons go over in groups on medical expeditions and pretty much at the start of the trip, everyone knows they're coming. So people with clefts or burns or tumours, anything, a a medical condition will come in, they'll assess them, they'll tell them, yep, we're operating tomorrow, the next day, all of this. And they don't turn anyone away unless there's something Mm. uh, that they can't operate on, but they will do any extremes of surgeries and I was lucky enough to go on one of those trips to Samoa, saw firsthand how they operate on a cleft and that was some of the most incredible things, um, an incredible week that I was a part of and it's quite sad to know that over in some of those countries, um, if you are born with a cleft, you're shunned from the community or if they don't understand what it is, you're ostracised and pushed away so kids won't talk to you, parents won't talk to you. And there was one kid in particular that um, was uh, the parents didn't want them and just luckily the grandparents said, well, we will, we'll look after this kid and they brought the girl into surgery and I actually sat in on these these consults and and spoke to the families and a lot of the families that the communication barrier is quite hard and so they were saying, here's what we're going to do to your baby, we're fixing the lip, we're fixing the palate mm. um, or we'll fix the palate next year when we come back so it will close over and they're just looking really confused, really upset. And so I'd step in and I'd say, I, I had the same thing that your child has. This is my scar. This is not what you'll look like, but this is a end result of these surgeries. And from a face that was just very worried, scared and upset, it was just a, oh, my God, really? And, <laughs> and for them to know that, that that a cleft is just that cosmetic detail mm. and they fix it, they were just beside themselves. Mm. So to see that firsthand, I was like, all right, I've got to do some fundraising. Mm. I've really got to do something. And, of course, I didn't pick just a charity night or something like that. I picked the bloody New York Marathon. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like very much like a Jess Hosking thing to do. (laughs) Yes, yes. I remember calling Sarah and I was like, Sarah, I've signed you up for something. Um, Do you want to come and do a charity thing for me? And she's like, yeah, what what do I have to do? I was like, um, so we're going to New York. And she's like, oh, cool, yeah, like, what else? I was like, we're running a marathon. <laughs> but it was a challenge and it was something we absolutely loved. We had a ball along the way. We've videoed a lot of our run and they've been some of the funniest um, mm. videos to look back on. That's very, very cool. And you're, of course, ambassador for Clef Pals as well. Um, do you get a lot of messages from parents like myself and from, from kids? Yeah, I think... Um, when I put certain posts up about cleft stuff is when um, that connection happens between parents, mm. kids, adults, anyone that has kind of been cleft affected, but not only cleft affected, just for the last one to be about bullying, the, the mm. amount of people that came back and spoke about that. But the cleft, uh, cleft pals, um, I actually reached out to them when I first started footy 
And I thought I finally found a group and that was the first group I had ever found. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to help. I don't yeah. know how, but I have to help. And so I messaged them and they're, they're a group of, or they're a not-for-profit group, but they're a group of mums, family members, cleft-affected um, adults that are just a group of people that come together to try and help others. They don't mm. do it for money themselves. They just want to help others. And so I said to him, look, I don't know um, if you know me or anything and I, I've i been seeking a group like this for so long. Mm. I have a very small following and very thankful for the platform that football has been able to give me, but I would like to help in some way. I don't know what that looks like, but can I help? Mm. And so they had a meeting, I think the next night they had one of their uh, their meetings and so I w- went along to it <laughs> and just started talking with them and they were like oh my god we're looking for an ambassador we'd love mm-hmm. love for you to do it and I have since so I, I, while I don't know particularly what my role is it's not necessarily um, to get money for them or anything like that but I think my role more so is just to create the awareness mm. and um and try and show that way. They've got a really cool group called Clef Stars and Mm. um, Clef Stars is for kids growing up through their Clef journey and they all do Clef Star catch-ups and um, it creates a space for these kids to talk to other kids going through the same thing. And while COVID was very annoying, Mm. um, we were still running quizzes and stuff online for those groups and doing a few little catch-ups and it's an incredible group that I just, like I said, I wish I had that when I was growing up and I, that's one thing I'm so thankful for, for social media that when when used properly, social media can be so powerful. Mm, yeah, uh, it gets a bad rap but I totally agree. Like it helps you find your peeps, finds your community and connect with people going through that. Same. That was your advice to me was make sure Elle connects with people who've gone through that because that's what you wanted um, to do as well. I just need to go before I ask, what changed for you from going from this journey and really struggling you know, with your identity and, and with um, with the bullying and everything, you know, what, what changed for you? How did you pull that out and be? Because listening to you, you're so confident, you're so beautiful, you're so lovely, just the best person ever. I'm in love with you, Jess Husky. <laughs> I know you speak up, but like, how did you, how did you change that? How did you turn that around? Um, after, after that one surgery that I was waiting for, I think, and I hate to say it, but the confidence that came when I looked at myself in the mirror, I had a splint on my nose. You couldn't recognise my eye because my eye was puffed up. I had bruises all around me from the major surgery that I had. I looked in the mirror and I was happier looking in the mirror than I was the day before. Mm. And I just couldn't understand why. And so to reflect on that um I don't like the fact that we need to change ourselves to fit in with society Mm -hmm. and fit in what the norms are. But at the same time, until I could, I guess, love myself and until I could be confident and comfortable in who I was and, and I think that meant owning my story. And so after that point, I did a lot of reflecting and, and trying to understand why that made me happy that day, why 
I looked like I had been hit by a bus and why was that the happiest day of my life to that point? And so reflecting on it, it was because I, I, I didn't love myself. I didn't love how I looked and I then became confident and um, I tried to understand that what, what really can come from worrying about what other people think of me and the more I stopped thinking about the person that was walking past looking at me and staring at me, well, I just walked past them. There's nothing more to it. And so I started to share that story and, and share the little things that I'd gone through and understand that there was other people going through them. And I was like, wow, this is powerful. Everyone has something that they're insecure about, whether or not it's your face or your body or might just be your personality. Mm. And those little things are just your own insecurities and they will only grow if you let other people dictate growing them. So that's kind of where that came from and the more I owned that myself and started to share the powerful messages that came from me sharing was the powerful messages from people coming back and for me to share one thing like I messaged you you messaged me back and just said whether or not it was thank you for sharing that it just became so powerful Mm. and that's why I continued to share it and I start to not care about what people think so much about my looks and all that sort of thing and I think one of the biggest things that I will now live by and do live by is that we've got to embrace our imperfections. And while everyone probably has an imperfection, just depending on the scale of what yours is, if you can embrace it, you're not going to care about what other people think. Mm. And I think that's so powerful. Mm. Saying that as our final question, what advice would you give that 10-year-old little Jess? (laughs) 10-year-old little Jess um, <laughs> I was a very fragile little Jess, <laughs> um, but I would, I would say again, don't worry about what other people are saying. Keep doing what you love. Keep being who you are. Um, embrace those imperfections and share your story as much as you can and never give up. And never give up. Never give up. Jess, I think you're a remarkable person. Um, This has been a podcast I've wanted to do for a while and I guess I probably had to get to the right place with my own daughter through that first really difficult year to be able to do that. But um, can I tell you, I am so glad that when she grows up, she has someone like you to look up to. Um, And I want her to own her story just like you have owned your story. And I think both you and Sarah are two very remarkable players, but two very remarkable humans. So thank you for all you do from the whole Cleft community. Um, You're a great ambassador. I get Cleft mums (laughs) messaging me on Instagram. They're going, oh, have you met that Jess Hosking? That like, I loved her. Like I found her. That's awesome. That gave me, you know, that gave me strength to know, you know, what journey my daughter or my son is about to go through. So there's a lot of Cleft mums talking about you all the time. But (laughs) thank you for being such a great human being. and, um, And thank you for all the support you have given me. And thank you for sharing your story with On Her Game. Thank you very much, Sam. It's, it's been incredible. I can't wait to finally actually come over and meet you and meet no. Al. And, Borders um, are down. We can do uh, it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's nice. I'll actually get on the plane and I'll come over and I am that excited. I can't wait to meet you both and um, thank you for having me on. The, the incredible work that you're doing, not only 
for on her game, um, sharing people's stories that way, but the incredible work you're doing for the Clef community as well. Um, you're a massive, massive ambassador <laughs> in your own in your own way um, for sharing all of that. And if any mums or families or kids <laughs> or anyone messages you about me, you can send them my way. I do. I'm always, always happy to have a chat to anyone and any, any questions anyone has about it. Um, we don't we don't know if we don't ask. So um, always here for anyone that needs it. Love it. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, Producer, Lindsay Green. Audio producer, Nikki Sitch. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. This episode was created in partnership with Puma for the Fearless podcast series. To stay up to date with their incredible female sporting icons, follow at PumaAU on Instagram. And remember, stay fearless.